promote a kind of training in democracy. If, for instance, somebody would say, or I could imagine, I have no friend, many friends would say to me, look, Mike, I don't know anything about electricity. I don't want to make decisions about that. I want the experts to do it. Or about water, or about any number of other things in our lives. I mean, I think that that kind of trained um, assumption of ignorance may be one of the other important obstacles to democracy. You know, like, you know, those politicians that are making decisions, they're no great geniuses. You know, I don't think, and nobody pretends that they're geniuses. They're given information, and they make decisions. I mean, I, I don't see why you and I aren't capable of similar decisions. being another so Baruch Spinoza defines well he, he defines joy first in, in a way the primary most important political affect joy is 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 the sensation of our becoming more powerful like our be having more power to think and act love is that joy the increase of my power to think and act with a recognition of an external cause so think about the joy and love of the encampments then, precisely in terms of that, they're the recognition of our greater ability to think and act about the world, in the world, with a recognition that that's due to each other, to this external cause. That's, that seems to me a very geometrical, dispassionate uh, notion of what a, a political recognition of love could be. If we think of politics as only based on interests or objective facts or reason as if it were separated from passions, we'll miss what's actually guiding our lives. Natasha. Oui. Pensez votre tête en avant. accept with this or, or part of going down this road is to recognize how love changes society and changes us i mean love is an ontological condition an ontological power really in that sense Somebody to be their own 
as a professional philosopher, I often have trouble remembering this point, restated so often by James that philosophy lives in words, but truth and fact well up into our lives in ways that exceed verbal formulation. This comment, one that is meant to curtail philosophy's delusions of grandeur, is at the very core of James's thought, and his pragmatism should not be removed from this frame. At the outset of Pragmatism, a slim but surprisingly dense book published in 1908, which provides a set of variations on pragmatism, James warns his reader how simple, yet how deleterious it is to divorce philosophy from the realities of life. He writes of a recent student, maybe William Ernest Hawking, maybe his colleague Josiah Royce, who came from a Western college, whose final thesis dramatically reflected this potential problem. The student began by saying that he had always taken for granted that when you entered a philosophic classroom, you had to open relations with a universe entirely distinct from the one you left behind you in the street. The two were supposed, he said, to have so little to do with each other that you could not possibly occupy your mind with them at the same time. The world of concrete personal experiences to which the street belongs is multitudinous beyond imagination, tangled, muddy, painful, and perplexed. The world to which your philosophy professor introduces you is simple, clean, and noble. The contradictions of real life are absent from it. Its architecture is classic. Principles of reason trace its outlines, logical necessities cement its parts. Purity and dignity are what it most expresses. It is a kind of marble temple shining on a hill. In point of fact, it is far less an account of this actual world than a clear addition built upon it, a classic sanctuary in which the rationalist fancy may take refuge from the intolerably confused and gothic character which mere facts present. It is no explanation of our concrete universe. It is another thing altogether, a substitute for it, a remedy, a way of escape. Pragmatism is not a means of escape. When I suggest that William James' philosophy might save a life, I'm not suggesting that he will rescue you from it. In my experience, on good days, it can return one refreshed and undaunted. Be not afraid of life, James reminds us. Pragmatism is not a marble temple on a hill that can only be reached by abandoning the lowlands of human existence. Pragmatism is a structure, but we are already inside. James occasionally called it a hallway that leads to a number of different doors. They are unlocked, but you get to pick which ones you wish to open. It is a method, not a destination. A way, not an endpoint. I like to think of it as a home. Not unlike James's house in Shikorawa, with many windows and doors. The windows provide specific but expansive lookouts. The doors open to pathways that lead God knows where. This is not a place of worship, built of marble, but a place to dwell and meet the world. At times, the point of pragmatism might be to transcend it. Philosophically speaking, James attempted something very hard, maybe impossible, at least for one person. 
He wanted to craft a philosophy that was absolutely honest to the twisted, often contradictory facts of life, but also to the desire that many of us have to transcend them. In his words, he wanted to provide a way of thinking between the tough-minded scientist and the tender-minded idealist, preserving what is valuable about both sides. He's suggesting that individuals tap meaning and experience zest in singularly unique ways. In other words, we are the same precisely because there is an irreducible difference between the zests that make our worlds meaningful. And at the same time, the disappointment and tragedy of zest unrealized or zest extinguished is a similar feeling of utter alienation and loneliness. We feel ourselves apart in the same way. In the history of moral theory, ethical communities usually consist of members who share common loyalties or characteristics. Maybe they worship the same god or flag. Maybe they all possess reason, and this gives them incomparable worth. Maybe they all can experience pain and pleasure. There are, however, individuals who are uncommon who don't worship the right things or exhibit the right attributes. These deviant individuals aren't granted access to the communities in question. In truth, they're usually treated like outcasts. Communities based on commonality can be surprisingly exclusive. James, like Arthur Schopenhauer nearly a century earlier, was after an ethical community based on difference. Schopenhauer claimed that individuals were companions in misery, suffering individuates, meaning it is experienced subjectively, in isolation. But this, in fact, is the underlying commonality of the social world. So let's get back to some philosophy. Maybe it could help uh, get our minds off of all that is changing globally in every way. Some of the changes are actually really, really good. So you think about it that way the next time you feel home alone or isolated or something. I think we're several months in now. Sociologists and social scientists are going to have a field day with this because the isolation is problematic in many ways for the kind of society we have today. And now we're seeing a spike in COVID cases um, end of June 2020. And so uh, there are various ways that everybody has been coping and would be awesome to talk about those when we all get back together again. But some philosophy for now, I don't know if many of you, any students listening from RWU, if I'm sure you know, but if you don't know, after professors get a chance to take a break, if we get a chance to take a break, many of us have not had breaks yet since the end of the semester and finals, considering all the changes happening at the university level in the whole United States. Um, we've been working, if not every day, every other day, etc. many, many, many people. Um, but after you get a few weeks break or a few days break or 
some time to rest somehow in that month after the semester ends, especially for professors who work really hard, teach many classes, do research, are on committees, or maybe in some administrative position or a chair of a department, etc. They are very busy. We are very busy, etc., etc., etc. So getting back to um, thinking about the fall semester starts to happen along the way. And prepping for classes starts to happen uh, during the summertime as well. So I'm just sitting here thinking about film theory and watching some old films and thinking about how lucky I am and fortunate and having gratitude for the ability to, to do that right now and the time and having a paycheck. Um, even though we took pay cuts, you know, many people have been furloughed or lost their jobs. So just feeling a lot of gratitude. And I'm thinking about film theory and I'm thinking about my class this fall, uh, in philosophy of film and very proud of the anthology that I co-edited was published with Rutledge last year. But I'm reading um, at the moment some notes and chapters in Thomas Wartenberg and Angela Curran's The Philosophy of Film Introductory Texts and Readings. Uh, it's been out a few years, but it's not, it's not uh, that. It's still fairly new. And one of the debates... Or just the also the writing. I just like the writing, and this happens to be Malcolm Turvey, and his chapter and his writing, and this debate about how far the methodologies of natural science can be used to study film on a philosophical level. So that's the gist, and some of the quotes that I really appreciate. Uh, by Malcolm Turvey um, includes this note he says where he's talking about the film philosopher Noel Carroll seminal film philosopher um, and what maybe he where he differs from Carroll but he writes sentences like this which I think are really telling and great start starting points or food for thought Employing this post-positivist model of theory in film studies is a noble goal. And this is something that many film philosophers feel this post-positivist movement has been happening since the 80s and maybe even the 60s onward. But it has a lot to do with philosophy. If you don't know those terms and you're interested, just Google them and put philosophy in there. Uh, But... um, the quotes are, for it is, un- this is Turvey writes, for it is undoubtedly the case that rigorous dialectical criticism is essential for progress in any pursuit of knowledge. True. It's a philosophy point, just a logic point, right? And as Carroll and others have shown, quote, sustained, detailed, inter-theoretical debate and criticism is rare in the history of film theory, end quote. That's true and not true, and also shocking statement. And maybe from the philosophy standpoint of, you know, um, the idea of dialectical criticism within philosophy of film, then that makes a lot of sense. Um, but Turvey goes on to write. Uh, Furthermore, it is perfectly reasonable to turn to the natural sciences 
to find methods and forms of explanation considering their enormous explanatory success and prestige and big data. It depends on your data and who's taken all the data but and what you missed. But um, he goes on, and I love this part. Turvey writes, however, the natural sciences do not have a monopoly on dialectical criticism. Right? Well said. It can be a feature of any rational form of inquiry, whether scientific or, or not, if participants are willing, and that goes in line with how, you know, staying logical, staying rational, and also staying calm and respectful. Ego gets out of hand when we think we're making a logical point, and that happens to everybody. And I'm fascinated, and I've heard stories that this happens, that, you know, by the time you hit your 40s, you get it. If if you're an educated person or even interested in being a knowledgeable human being, there are 8 billion people, you know, 8 billion perspectives. And so it's easy to check the ego um, as long as you're around other respectful, rational, calm, creative, interesting people talking about these topics with you. Uh, if not then it can really go off the rails very quickly. And we all know this from anyone who we love or like or have to work with or whatever and can't communicate with effectively, right? Communication styles vary among human beings, cultures, background, experience, education, all that. Language, use of language, what kind of language or languages. And so Turvey writes... Um, that And while post-positivist model of theory recommended by Carol may help film scholars to explain some things about the cinema, I think we need to explain carefully whether it or indeed any model of theory can help us explain everything about it. This is because, as Carol himself points out, the subject matter of humanistic disciplines, such as cinema studies, as one of many humanistic important disciplines, possesses features of its own that set it apart from the phenomena studied by natural sciences. That is food for thought, peeps, right? Possesses features of its own. So philosophy of film and cinema studies possess features of their own that set them apart from the phenomena studied by natural sciences. Otherwise, we're going to have to if that's true, and I believe it is, we're going to have to redefine what natural science is if we don't agree. But what Carol does, uh, continue, Turvey continues, but what Carol does not take into consideration is the possibility that because of these features, the methods employed by the natural sciences, including the model of theory he recommends, may be logically inappropriate for explaining much humanistic subject matter. Wonderful, end quote. I'm going to make a, an aside point here and just show a logical, there's a logical, obviously there's logic being used in that argument by Turvey, right? And in film studies and what we're talking about here. But there's a logical connection to some of the other more esoteric topics that I've been working on or interested in or whatever in metaphysics because to say if the, if you could get so here's my brief but spectacular argument mini <laughs> i say that npr has these wonderful 5 minute brief spectacular clips you should check them out but um so if we were to take that point about 
logical absurdities or or I wouldn't say absurdities because it's logic so logical inappropriateness is, is the term Turvey uses which I actually at first I went ooh no and then I was like ooh no that I like that that works so logically inappropriate but to which he only means it, you can't there's not just one form of logic right we know this but you'll rarely well, that's not fair. You you won't meet a lot of natural scientists in your average everyday encounters, doctors, uh, any kind of scientists in general, right, who will admit that there are different kinds of logic. Although the ones that do understand, admit, work with that already, know that already, they're some of the best scientists, because they know what they're looking at, they know what they're looking for, they know they know sometimes how to be an objective observer, however that's even possible as historically situated subjects, culturally and otherwise. But, uh, you know, you get my point, I hope. But the logical structures allowed, if you could say that cinema studies has, and studies topics and features that are not appropriate to be studied by natural science, not logically appropriate to be studied by natural science, then you can use that same exact argumentation for metaphysics in certain areas. You could say, look, Kantian categories, and I'm thinking here of Thomas Nails being in motion chapters three and four, which will be very helpful. Audiobook it if you can't read or don't want to read it, or what it's a big book. If you can read it, read it. Audiobook is fine for me right now. There's too much, too much going on. But uh, if you were to think about the Kantian categories, if you know what I'm talking about here, philosophy peeps, and you were try to apply them to certain metaphysical experiences that we have science for, that science does track and observe. So you know, the point is we have these logic, we have this, we have these scientists that have this phenomena in metaphysics that they measure. Um, and if there's no logical way to materially explain using current physics models, maybe, or current biology models, or, in other words, you see where I'm going with this. If you can say in cinema studies and philosophy of film that there are features that are studied logically that cannot be addressed by natural science as a general blanket statement because it's not logically appropriate, doesn't really transfer, you could use that same argument here. You can say there are measurable, natural science measurable uh, which is still a debate, but it's it's out there. Look it up. L- listen to earlier podcasts, <laughs> you know, the, the one on Kant in particular, uh, that there are folks with experiences that scientists study because they can't explain them. There's no biological explanation for them. There's no chemical explanation. There's no natural science explanation. And yet there's all these witnesses or there's doctors or people die on the operating table, et cetera, et cetera. And then... It's you could use that model of earlier of Turvey's uh, here to say that uh, that's just not logically appropriate to um, apply abusive ad hominem, the logical fallacy, or 
apply straw man or I mean there are many logical Aristotelian formal logic structures that do work and journalists use them and rely on them every single day if they're good journalists to make sure you don't fall into those logical fallacies uh you know um red herring straw man all that but it seems like if you could make this argument in cinema studies about natural science and philosophy of film, then you could use the same structure of argumentation for Kant versus the current modern natural science measuring metaphysical phenomena that human beings have sometimes that have no current material explanation. Just food for thought. <laughs> Just fun. Physics, for example, routinely assembles new matters and even actively changes how matter is treated, as with the introduction of Einstein's theorem of matter, energy, conversion, or E equals mc squared. Energy and momentum currently define all matter for contemporary physics. The ontology of motion, however, is not conceptually limited to this specific determination because matter could be distributed differently, even if, historically, we do not yet know what that will look like. The point is that matter may be distributed in many ways and given many names, but that in every case the distributions and descriptions are all real and imminent aspects of its materialization, not merely names or ideas about matter. Matter is really shaped in the process of knowing or describing it. Being and motion thus makes no metaphysical claims about the nature of matter as a continuous or discrete substance. 
This is because matter is not a substance at all, but rather an indeterminate kinetic process. Matter, along with space and time, occurs in and through constant movement. There is not a static thing, stuff, or substance we can ontologically designate as matter any longer. As the Italian physicist Carlo Rovelli writes, the impossibility of anything being entirely and continuously still in a place is at the heart of quantum mechanics. If matter is liberated, then so is the motion by which it is moved. Without matter, the concept of movement remains a formal or idealist category. Without pedetic movement, however, matter remains static, discontinuous, law-bound, substantial, and merely passive. Being and motion, therefore, puts forward both a new kinetic materialism and a material kinetics, neither crude, contemplative, failed, negative, nor vital. If historical being is in motion, and all of motion is pedetic, and matter is what is in motion, then matter can no longer be defined by mechanism or metaphysics, neither substance nor subject. 